Hello and welcome to the Transfix Take On. I'm your host, Jenny Ruiz, and today we're taking on the subject of second chances in trucking. I have the pleasure of sitting with Jason Wang, founder and CEO of Free World, a minority-led 501c3 organization whose mission is to end generational poverty and recidivism by giving formerly incarcerated people a fresh start with a career in trucking. Welcome to the show, Jason. Pleasure to have you. Thanks, Jenny. It's an honor to be here. Absolutely. Yeah. So we've got a lot to cover today. I would love us. Uh, let's set the stage by giving a snapshot of some of these statistics that you've provided. So 67.8% of released prisoners are rearrested within three years of release. The unemployment rate among formerly incarcerated people is about 27%, which is a high number. And then there are about 18 to 20 daily requirements that people on probation must comply with where they face rearrest. So what I'm getting from that is those first three years upon re-entry into society are critical. Talk to me about how Free World helps with that transition. Yeah, and just to go into those numbers a little bit deeper, you know, one, one of the primary challenges for people who uh, are formerly incarcerated is when somebody commits a crime, they are given a sentence by the judge, and then the person goes to a prison, and they serve their time, and they pay their debt to society. I mean, that is the agreement in our criminal justice system, that if you do something wrong, you go to prison, and that's your way of paying your debt to society. But the challenge happens upon release, where inside of prisons, people do not have access to quality education or vocational programs, and therefore don't have any skills leaving a prison that would allow them to be successful in a work environment. And then the second piece of that is that even after you've paid your debt to society and served your time, you are released with a criminal record. And a criminal record is essentially a death sentence for anybody in America. Because if you think about it, anytime that you apply for housing, for a job, for education, for a loan, whatever it may be, the first thing that you have to do is disclose the worst thing that you've ever done. Right. Just right. imagine, imagine how it feels to apply for 50 to 100 jobs only to be rejected. Yeah. And so it's no wonder that we have a system today where people are being released from the system and being sent back in droves. It's as if we are setting people up for failure upon release. Mm. So this is where free world comes in. And the way that we, um, the way that we support people with criminal histories is number one, uh, we accept people regardless of the criminal history and regardless of how long they've been in prison, if they've even been arrested before, like really for free world, the only thing that we care about is do you have a criminal history? And if yes, it doesn't matter if you've been incarcerated before or not, we will still accept you into our program. Hmm. And the way that we support individuals is that when people join our program, we immediately get to work on um, helping them get their basic needs met right and one example is to get people vital documents when somebody leaves a prison they may not have access to a birth certificate social security card or driver's license mm -hmm. and the frustrating thing about these vital documents is that you need a birth certificate in order to get a license you need a license to get a social security card you need a social security card to get a birth certificate so where do you start Right. Um, we've created technology that is able to bypass all the confusion and just get people the documents that they need, uh, like within a week of requesting that that document, and we pay for it all. Um, and we built a, a ton of wraparound services in addition to the vital documents. But like that is a critical piece that most people take for granted. 
And uh, it's kind of like the start of our program when people first join. It's so interesting because I was just on the United States uh, passport website the other day and just trying to figure out how to renew my passport was so frustrating. So I can only imagine what it's like when you are looking for some documents as simple as your birth certificate, which you should have immediate access to. And having that discussion of frustration and, and starting uh, and helping them with that start, I think is amazing because we don't talk about that at all. I didn't even yeah. know about that. Yeah, I mean, you know, without identification, you literally can't do anything in life. Yeah. So, like, that is how important these initial documents are. But the sad, sad thing is, is that 60% of people who are released from prisons mm -hmm. don't have one or any of those documents. Mm. And so that's already one significant hurdle to overcome. And we haven't even gotten into the rest of the reentry experience. Right. <laughs> so talk to me a little bit more about that reentry experience and what happens once they have all their documents um, uh, with them. Yeah. So typically, without Free World's program, you know, if you do get released, you know, hopefully you have family to go home to, but not everybody is that lucky. Right. Yep. But if you do have family to go home to, um, what I personally experienced in, in doing this work for the past 15 years, um, you know, one of the things that we've noticed is that the vast majority of people who are arrested or returned to prison after being released are coming from backgrounds of poverty. Right. And so you can imagine that you went to prison, you're coming out, you have a criminal record, but you're also going back home to a neighborhood that is likely filled with violence, gangs, drugs, and limited opportunity. Right. That's right. Right. And then on top of that, you have that criminal record. So like you're, you're almost stuck in place in a situation where there's just very few opportunities to lift yourself up and mm -hmm. pursue a positive pathway. That's right. Because there isn't any accessibility toward educational programs or anything of substance that will lead to a outcome. Mm -hmm. And that is the entire thesis of our organization is that poverty is the reason that most people go to prison and that getting people into living wage careers we're not talking about like 20 30 40 thousand dollar a year jobs i'm talking about living wages something that can sustain a, a family getting people into living wage careers is the key to ending generational poverty but also stopping the continuing cycle of crime you know, you, I, I have to say, um, we've been working with you here for, for a bit, and I, I always get excited to hear you speak because it's so impassioned, um, and there's such a, a real mission behind that. And I, I uh, for anyone that will go on the Free World website, we will see your story. But for those that are listening, what led you to this work? What, what brought you here? Yeah, yeah. Well, look, my, my life's mission is to end mass incarceration. And, you know, the things I talk about are things I've experienced myself. Um, you know, my parents were immigrants who came to this country with absolutely nothing. They didn't speak English. They didn't have any friends or family here. And so we grew up in poverty. Uh, my father had a really bad temper and, you know, basically used me as a punching bag growing up. Um, he would always tell me that I would never amount to anything, that I was a good for nothing. Um, and when he got really, really angry, he used to physically abuse me. Um, you know, there were several times where he got so angry that he picked up a butcher knife and was chasing me around trying to kill me. Um, another time I was living in Iowa and, um, you know, my father had got so angry at me that he stripped me down naked, threw me onto the floor, stomped on me, and then threw me out naked into like a snowstorm. Oh, 
And that was my childhood experience growing up, um, living in Iowa uh, and being of Asian descent. There weren't a whole lot of people that looked like me. And so I grew up, um, you know, facing racial slurs on a, on a daily basis. Mm. Um, and by the age of 10, I had already attempted suicide three times. Right. At 11, my parents got divorced and I moved down to Texas with my mom. And by that point, I was already an angry kid that was lost in this world. And I, I ended up joining a gang because the gang represented the family that I didn't have at home. And that's where I, I went to go get my safety and security and that love and respect and that sense of belonging in the world. And the gang leader essentially functioned as my father figure and taught me the things that he knew what to do. Mm. And so that led me to committing a first degree felony, aggravated robbery at the age of 15. And I was sent to a maximum security juvenile prison for 12 years. And that began the start of my career in the criminal justice system. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, was it that you wanted at what point and and feel free to say, I I don't want to get into that. But while you were there, while you were incarcerated, at what point did you want to provide this opportunity for others um, that were going through this experience? Yeah, no, it, it, it didn't happen overnight. It actually happened over the course of many, many years. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that really changed my life, and I was one of the rare examples and one of the, the few people that were lucky to have a really loving mother that just never, never gave up on me. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was arrested and sent to prison, my mom used to drive 14 hours every single weekend just to come see me in prison for two hours. Hmm. And she used to say that even though you're physically in prison, mentally and emotionally, I'm in prison with you. And it was her and my grandma coming to prison and visiting me. And every single time I would go to visitation, they would be crying their eyes out. Hmm. That is what changed my life around. Because when I committed my crime and when I first went into the prison system, I blamed everybody else and did not accept responsibilities uh, for the things that I had done. Nobody nobody forced me to do anything. I made these decisions as a 15 year old, right? but I didn't accept responsibility for it. Mm. And it was seeing my mother and my grandma cry over and over and over again, that I started to realize that I'm the cause of their pain. I'm the reason why they're suffering. Mm. And it was in taking ownership of my actions that I started to turn the corner. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a really incredible turnaround. You know, I want to focus a little bit about why trucking as a second chance career. Yeah. So one of the things that I did while I was in prison was I, I developed GED programs and Bible study programs and you know, the, this prison helped kids between the ages of 10, 20 years old. And so we had like 19 year old kids who didn't know how to read and write, mm. right? So in developing these programs, one of the things that I realized going through that experience is in a, in, in a prison setting, grouped in with everybody else, everybody has a hard exterior. Because by having a hard exterior, that is one way that you prevent yourself from becoming a victim. The way that prisons are designed is that they're designed for violence, where 
You know, these are gray cinder block walls. There's very little programming, uh, programming throughout the day. Um, there are very scarce resources. And so it's crazy that like we put people into prisons and expect them to come out as reformed individuals that are going to be positive and all this other stuff. Right. But like you're going into a place where you have to survive in order to make it. Yeah. And the things that will make you successful in prison are the same things that will lead you to failure on the outside. Hmm. Now, that being said, when I was running these GED programs, uh, the prison guards gave me a little room that I could use. And I would sit there, I would just teach kids how to read, write, you know, do math and all these other things. And, and the realization coming out of that was that once people understood the concepts and started to succeed, they were hungry to learn. Hmm. And, and the realization there is that for the vast majority of us, what success looked like for us was failure compared to societal standards. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like yeah. success in the hood is not going to school and getting good grades. Right. But people know that this is a revolving door and that without the ability to get a good education and good job opportunity, that we're essentially trapped in the system. And so the eye-opening moment there was that when people learned, they got their GED, they were hungry for more because they didn't want to spend the rest of their lives looking over their shoulders and they want to make something of themselves. Absolutely. So that, was, so that was the first realization. The second thing is after I got released from prison, I received a full scholarship. I ended up going to the University of Texas at Dallas and I received a double master's. But even with two master's degrees, nobody would hire me. Right. And at my lowest points, I even considered committing crimes again just to be able to put food on the table. Look, we're all human beings. What would you do for your children if they were starving? Absolutely, yeah. Criminal, criminal history or not. So that's when we start to realize, oh, it's a job, a living wage job that's the key to ending the cycle. And as we looked across all the different industries, one of the things that we started to realize is like, look, nobody will hire somebody with criminal history because everybody has these implicit biases and fears about people with criminal histories. But there are industries where there's a large labor shortage. Hmm. And therefore, they have to be open to hiring people who have that skill set because there's just not enough people that have it. Right. And therefore, that allows us a foothold into an industry where we can start to change perceptions. Mm -hmm. And what I'm really, really proud of is that, you know, of the 550 graduates that we have, you know, trained over the past couple of years, these guys are excelling in the trucking industry, starting to disprove the myth that most people have about somebody with a criminal history. So let's get into that because, you know, you, you really uh, mentioned the fact that when folks are hiring or, or the fact that you couldn't even get a job when you when you were you know you had two masters right that mm -hmm. that's significant there's so much work that goes in behind that or into that and still couldn't get a job now what happens when um these carrier companies these fleets right these even these shippers that are working with they hire or maybe they overlook a really awesome candidate who is going to continuously meet and beat kpis and metrics that are set but they look over because they have a criminal record. So talk to me about how we can demyth de de that and debunk that myth really is what I'm trying to say here. Um, that you can hire someone with a criminal record. Yeah. And you can trust them. Yeah. Well, look, number one, 
there are a hundred million American adults that have a criminal record. So the business case here is that the companies who start early and thinking about fair chance hiring practices will end up being the ones winning overall. Mm. Because this is not something that you can just flip a switch and then all of a sudden it works. Right. The second thing is that criminal history or not, just look at this from like a human psychology standpoint. Whether or not you have a criminal history, if you don't have your basic needs, like if we were to take a look at Maslow's hierarchy, that pyramid, and the very bottom rung is gonna be food, safety, shelter, all these other things, anybody, criminal history or not, that doesn't have their basic needs met, have a higher probability of committing some sort of crime, sure. right? Because it's a human instinct just to survive. And then the third thing is the way that we see it is we've had people who were early adopters. They have hired our graduates. And what they've seen is, look, just look at a person based on their driving record in the trucking industry. If somebody has a clean driving record and two years of experience, what that should tell employers is that obviously they must be a good employee. Or they must be a good driver because they've been able to consistently keep employment for two years and they've been able to do it well. So those are things that, that I, I encourage employers to think about. The business case for why this is good for their business, the human element of this business. And the third piece is just judging people for who they are today, not what they did 15 years ago. Absolutely. I love to hear the story about, you know, your, your, uh, 550 graduates that have been able to successfully get through this program because it's just 550 is not by any means a small number, right? That, that takes a lot of effort. That takes a lot of dedication and it takes a lot of consistency, like you said. So it just goes to show that this program works. It's just a matter of getting behind it, right? And I think that that number will increase exponentially through the years, especially as you continue on with this program. It's really inspiring to, to see. And I, I imagine for you proud, right? You must be proud of this. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, what one thing that, um, you know, I, I would uh, love to share with any employers that might be, you know, listening to this podcast yeah. is not everybody who joins our program ends up making it all the way through. There mm -hmm. is a, this is a tough program and we have very strict vetting protocols. And look, there's no such thing as 100%, right? Like we do our best to serve everybody and some will be some successful and some aren't. But for us to produce 550 graduates, that means that we have trained and worked with close to like four to 6,000 people. Mm. So the graduates who are coming out of free world are the, in our opinion, <laughs> are the most supported and best prepared people to enter this industry. Mm. Anybody can apply, but not everybody makes it through. That makes sense. I mean, you do have to be motivated enough to finish the program and, and really succeed in that. Um, which, you know, I, I also saw that you guys have built a community of those who have gone through the program to just be able to support one another, which, as you mentioned before, when you're reentering society, some people do not have the fortune of going back to a family or having friends that care about them. So talk to me a little bit about that community and how it works with with uh, graduates and those that are in the program. Yeah. So I'm a firm believer that at times our dreams are capped by what we can see. Mm. And if you grow up in a very poor neighborhood that is trapped in cycles of poverty and drugs and violence, then your dream is to become the local drug dealer because they're the ones with the fancy cars and all this other stuff. 
And it's because you don't see a pathway to do anything else. Like if you feel your entire life that nobody who looks like you and who has come from where you've come from has been able to, to build whatever it is that you're dreaming about, then people sometimes just don't feel like it's possible. Mm. And so that's what's important about the community building aspect of our program is that not only are new people joining our program and seeing the success of the graduates from our program and hearing the success from the graduates of our program. So it's not just us telling people, oh, you're gonna be successful. No, they're, they're actually getting a chance to meet and talk to people who are literally doing it on a day-to-day -day basis and have come from the same neighborhoods as these other folks who are coming in, right? So they, they see tangible examples of this. But the second thing is that for people who have gone through traumatic experiences, and I would say that for a lot of people that are growing up in these neighborhoods or have gone through the prison experience or heck, even being released out into society and having to deal with parole and probate and doing all these other things, these are all traumatic experiences. For sure, absolutely, yeah. What we've learned here is that people who have gone through the struggle like to help others who are going through the struggle. Mm. And there is a commonality and a brotherhood among our graduates where they want to pay it for and help the next guy because they can see themselves in the shoes of that individual just six months ago, just a year ago, just two years ago. Yeah. And that's the importance of this is can we build a community that is that has the resources and the mobility to uplift and reinvest in their own communities? Yeah. Because we aren't the ones that should be telling people what the solution is. Our communities are closest to the problem are typically farthest away from the resources to solve those problems. Mm. Let's talk about generational wealth for a second, because you, and I think that you brought up a point that a lot of people, one, are not comfortable talking about, but two, also don't understand, right? And so as minorities in, in, in just life, it is very, uh, you'd be hard pressed to find an individual, whatever generation they're from, that has assets like houses, like cars, et cetera, land, what have you, that are passed down. And often we are the ones that have to build that to create for those generations that come after us. And that is a very hard task. I can't even imagine what that's like for someone who has come from a community who feels like, like you said, their dreams are capped because of their environment. So how how is it that we can kind of see past that? And maybe you can educate people that don't know what that's like, um, you know, to grow up with that type of environment and, and how they can break past that uh, idealism and that thought. Yeah. I mean, um, I'll, I'll take my own family as an example. You know, when my parents came to America, they, they didn't have anything. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, I grew up with limited opportunity where I wasn't going to the best schools or the best aftercare program or after school programs or soccer camp and all like I didn't know it was I went to a public school I came home and when I came home I went to work at a Chinese restaurant and that was that that was my childhood growing up mm -hmm. but because of my parents hard work and, and sacrifice they gave me a better life than they did. And so I was able to go and get a college education. I was able to eventually land myself some pretty, you know, decently paying jobs. And I was able to educate myself on how to build wealth, how to access credit, to have investments, to think about 401k, to think about IRA Roth, to think about all these different things. And therefore, when my wife and I decide to have kids, and if we're lucky enough to have kids, 
our, the next generation will then have more opportunities than we had, right? And, and so that's the idea is that once people have the foundation to be able to access additional opportunities, generally the trend line goes up. Mm -hmm. But for the vast majority of people in America who have criminal histories or come from a minority background, it, it's it, it's a slower buildup because right. they're coming from a more disadvantaged place. That's right. You know what I'm saying? Like this stuff yep. isn't a switch. It doesn't just flip on. It takes generations to, to build up wealth. And one of the primary drivers of that is owning a home. Home ownership being passed down from generation to generation is a considerable asset that then sets up the next generation to have better opportunities. But when we, when we look at minorities in America, you know, going back to redlining and Jim Crow and new Jim Crow and the war on drugs and mass incarceration, like we have been legal, legally cut out of the system where even if we want to apply for loans, they would be at higher interest rates. And let, let's take the most recent, recent example. In 2020, COVID happened and the government offered PPP loans. And guess what was a stipulation as part of that PPP loan? If you had a criminal history, you could not access it. Yep. If you have a criminal history, your only choice is to start a business because ain't mm -hmm. nobody else going to hire you. So think about how many entrepreneurs died during mm -hmm. COVID because they didn't have access to credit. It's unfair. It, it, it's yeah. wildly unfair. It's just wildly unfair. I mean, especially if this business is doing well, like they've been legal paying their taxes, all this other stuff, and just happen to have a criminal history. It's like, look, I'm trying to better my life. I'm doing everything in my power to do it. Right. I didn't choose COVID, but now I can't access a PPP loan mm. for something I did 10 years ago? How is that fair? You know, we're either a society that believes in second chances or we're not. And we're talking about a population of people who have served their time. They've been punished for their crimes and, and they completed the requirements of that punishment and was approved by a board of directors from a prison agency that they were safe to re-enter society. Right. We're not asking for much here. We're just asking for the opportunity to lift ourselves up by our bootstraps and have the same opportunities as any other American. That's right. That's right. It's it's basic needs, right? It's basic access. It doesn't seem well. I mean, it shouldn't be this big of an issue, but it is. But what I loved was, you know, I, I was talking to you this, uh, talking to you about this before we we got started. And and one of my favorite things is to get the free world newsletter. And there are, you know, there's all these amazing testimonials and success stories. And and in the latest one, um, there is a photo of a gentleman who purchased his first home, which is a huge deal. And that is really amazing to see that he's setting up this success and wealth for his family, right? And 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 that is the free world mission. That is the free world mission come to life. And you know, part of that too is there's this pay it forward program that you guys have for those that successfully, uh, you know, uh, graduate and get through the program. That then a, a proceed right of their um, their salary goes towards helping the next person. Can you talk to me a little bit about that and how that's been helpful for you guys? Yeah. So, so when I think back to when I was committing my crimes, you know, it was a realization of I hurt my family, my victims and my community when I chose to make that decision. That was my choice. And therefore I was sent to prison and I was punished for it. But now that I'm out of prison and that I'm in a better place in my life, I feel like it's my duty and responsibility to give back. 
And we talked a little bit earlier about communities reinvesting in their own communities. Well, many people who come from these traumatic experiences want to be able to give back, but don't have a mechanism for doing so because so many people are ostracized from opportunities or living wage careers and all these other things, right? Mm -hmm. So now that our students are making 60, 70, 80, some of them making over $100,000 per year, what they're simply doing is paying a small portion of their income to help the next person go through school. And what that looks like for us is if somebody earns at least $50,000 per year, they pay $150 a month for a maximum of $3,600. And that's, that, that covers some of our costs as a nonprofit organization right. to help the next student go through school. Uh, I love that. I, I mean, today, I, I feel like we, I don't wanna cut this short, but I also know that um, I would like to get others involved in this conversation. So for those that do wanna support Free World's mission, and I cannot understand how after this impassioned conversation, you would not want to, but how can they help uh, sign up and, and support? Yeah, so, so we're looking for a couple of things. One is we're always looking for employers that we can partner with to send qualified candidates your way. And there are two ways to support there. One is we're building up a network of employers that will accept people who are coming out fresh out of school, right? And we all know that it's a challenge to hire somebody with no previous trucking experience, right? Um, so we're building up that network. The second thing is that we've got 550 students who have varying levels of experience, some with three years or more of experience. And so we would love to partner with employers where we can send you qualified candidates that meet your requirements, and all we're looking for is a small placement fee to help subsidize some of the costs of our business as a nonprofit. So that way I'm not out there on the streets begging for donations constantly. So it's just an earned income portion of the business that goes toward a good cause. And guess what? You're getting a qualified um, and well, you know, track record uh, individual. Uh, the second thing is that, yes, we are a nonprofit. So of course we would uh, love any type of financial support that uh, trucking companies can um, provide or just any individuals out there uh, can provide. Uh, we're also looking for advisors. Um, we have a gap in our leadership structure where, you know, we would love a trucking export uh, expert, um, you know, to, to be a close partner to us and to help us really, really navigate the space and really produce some of the, the best graduates out there um, and think about how to co-mingle uh, the for-profit incentive with the ability to do good in the world, right? So you can do well and do good at the same time. Um, and then lastly, um, Look, we, uh, we have a bunch of social media channels. Um, please share the good news that we share. Um, the more people who are able to break out of the stigma of, oh, this person has a criminal history and therefore is a bad person, uh, the more that we can educate the public on criminal justice reform issues, um, the better society it will have. So please, uh, please learn more and share what we, uh, what we have to offer. <laughs> and you can visit freeworld.org, and that's F-R-E-E-W-O-R-L-D.org um, to get involved. And, and Jason, you are always a pleasure to speak with. And thank you for such a, a passionate conversation today. This will not be the last time that we have this. And I would love to invite you back to, you know, I know that once we get more sponsors for you and, and folks that are involved, we'll have some more success stories to build on. But thank you so much for coming on the show today. Awesome. Yeah, this was an honor and privilege. Thanks.
All views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of Transfix Inc. or any parent companies or affiliates or the companies with which the participants are affiliated and may have been previously disseminated by them. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are based upon information considered reliable, but neither Transfix Inc. nor its affiliates nor the companies with which the participants are affiliated warrant its completeness or accuracy and it should not be relied upon as such. All views and opinions are subject to change.